And welcome to this episode of The Global Good Fight, a show dedicated to international news beyond the headlines from the West. I'm your host, Tim. This will be the first show returning back to the previous format after the reboot. I spoke more about this in an episode two weeks ago. Last week, I was unable to get an episode done because I had to go to work to make up for the days I took off during the Chinese New Year. Absurd, I know. But here we are again. Let's get back into it, starting with the headlines. Gunfire erupted on the streets of Myanmar's largest city, Yangon, on Saturday. It's how the country's military is responding to the surge in demonstrations over the detainment of leader Aung San Suu Kyi, February 1st. Suu Kyi is set to face hearings starting on Monday, March 1st. She's facing charges including importing six walkie-talkies illegally. And this comes courtesy of France 24, Myanmar's UN ambassador made an impassioned plea to the international community to take the strongest possible action against military rule. What we are saying is the government should purpose the security services to treat those who kill Nigerians as terrorists. The government should stop Anger in Nigeria after the latest kidnapping of schoolchildren by armed bandits. This comes courtesy of The Guardian. It's the third mass kidnapping of schoolchildren in three months. It took place in the early hours of Friday morning in the northwest town of Janjibi in the state of Zamfara. Police say over 300 schoolgirls have been taken. Reuters quoted an anonymous official who says the rise in kidnappings is being fueled by Nigeria paying ransom to kidnappers. The government has denied it has given any payouts. A lack of security in rural areas of Africa's most populous country has been what most analysts blame for the increase. What you're hearing is a rally that took place on February 25th in the Armenian capital Yerevan. It was in support of Anik Gasparian, the general staff of the country's armed forces who called for the resignation of Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan. Pashinyan said in response he was facing a military coup. This comes courtesy of the New York Times. The Prime Minister has been under fire from military officials over the handling of a six-week conflict in Azerbaijan over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region last year. Armenia agreed to a Russian-brokered ceasefire deal that saw Armenia cede territory it gained almost 30 years ago. Armenian military officials blame Pashinyan for the loss. That's it for headlines. Before we get into our Fast Five, here's a word from one of our sponsors this week. It comes from Raytheon. Are you tired of being a U.S. diplomat in China and being forced to do an anal swab test for COVID-19? Well, have no fear. Raytheon is here. For a limited time, U.S. diplomats in China can use Raytheon's own anal swab test. It's a 100% made-in-America anal swab. This time, when you're getting your bowels checked for a virus that has killed over 2.5 million people around the world in just over a year, you'll know that you'll be safe in the hands of an arms manufacturer rather than the Chinese government. If you act now, you can receive a free vibrating anal swab test, clinically proven to collect even more samples. Raytheon. Saving your anus from embarrassment. Senator Ted Cruz approves this message. Okay, and here are your fast five. <laughs> 
Number one, hundreds of supporters of Ecuadorian presidential candidate Yacoub Perez took to the streets of the capital Quito on Wednesday. They're demanding a recount in the first rounds of elections, which saw Perez come in third, meaning he did not make it to the second round. He and his supporters say there have been voting irregularities, which the country's election body says there's no evidence of, meaning a recount will be unlikely. Yacoub Perez belongs to the right-wing faction of Patakutik Party, an indigenous group focused on environmental protection. Andreas Arauz, who's seen as the predecessor to Democratic Socialist Ecuadorian President Rafael Correra, and Guillermo Lasso, a pro-capitalist businessman and politician, are set to take off in the second round of elections April 11th. Number two, The Guardian is reporting Teniti Mao Mao, the president of the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati, is transforming a tract of land on the neighboring island of Fiji into a commercial farm. Kiribati bought the land about five years ago to serve as a refuge if rising seawaters swallow up their island. Mao Mao says the land will be used to grow food for the import-reliant people of Kiribati. The Guardian reports, scientists have rejected the original rationale for buying the 22 square kilometer plot of land, saying Kiribati's sand atolls will rise with sea level. But these types of policies should remind us just how immediate the climate crisis is for island nations like Kiribati. While there are pressing matters of extreme weather in the global north, such as deadly winter weather in Texas or fires in California, island nations are facing a grim reality that their homes and livelihoods can be drowned within a matter of decades. And these are the countries with the least say in organizations like the United Nations. Number three, Ghana has become the first country outside India to receive a shipment of coronavirus vaccines under the COVAX mechanism. This comes courtesy of the World Health Organization and the Financial Times. 600,000 doses of AstraZeneca Oxford's vaccines arrived in Accra on Wednesday. The WHO calls COVAX the largest vaccine sharing distribution and procurement operation in history. But COVAX is behind schedule on delivering inoculations to Africa. It was set to deliver 15 million doses to nations part of the mechanism by the end of February. Now, when it comes to discussing the rollout of vaccines, now, when it comes to discussing the rollout of vaccines, one of the chief concerns from Western leaders and commentators is countries like Russia and China are providing vaccines, getting out in front of companies, other countries, and COVAX. French President Emmanuel Macron made this clear during his speech to the Munich Security Conference more than a week ago. He said if Europe and the U.S. do not supply vaccines to Africa, they'll turn to Russia and China. The underlying message here is the West will lose out on valuable propaganda they can use to cast themselves as the white saviors of the coronavirus pandemic. The irony seems to be lost on leaders like Macron seen as European countries and the U.S. make up six of the top 10 countries for infections in the world, which has undoubtedly contributed to cases in other parts of the world, including Africa. Number four, and for some lighter news, U.S. President has put on his big boy pants carrying out his first known military action during his time in office. 
Remember when this happened to Trump and all of a sudden outlets like CNN were calling him presidential after he carried out attacks on facilities in Syria? This is essentially what happened here, excluding the fact that Biden has received positive coverage already from these same outlets. Here's a gist of what the Pentagon's press secretary, John Kirby, had to say. He said Washington launched defensive airstrikes on facilities used by Iranian-backed militants in eastern Syria that launched rocket attacks against the U.S. and Iraq a week earlier. Kirby said there were preliminary indications of casualties, but did not provide a number of those killed. Now, I'm sarcastic when I say this is lighter news. Obviously, when it comes to any military aggression in the Middle East, particularly against militants the U.S. claims to be Iranian proxies. It's a continuation of long-standing U.S. Middle East policy that predates Biden and even Trump, for that matter. It's further pitting Washington against Tehran. And this is a time when the Biden administration says he wants to work with Iran on either returning to the 2015 nuclear deal or starting a new one. So, on the one hand, the U.S. is extending an olive branch. On the other, it's launching airstrike. Now, that's not to say Iran can get off scotch-free for this. Their actions throughout the region have contributed to destabilization, but they are also not nearly the hegemon the U.S. is. That kind of gets us to number five. An American intelligence report released Friday says Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, ordered the killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. The report was released just after Biden spoke over the phone to MBS's dad, King Salman. Saudi and U.S. officials provided vague accounts of the phone call, but the report was very likely brought up, as this was news in the making for months. What's notable about this phone call is Biden was speaking directly to the king, which is a big turnabout from the Trump administration, who dealt directly with MBS. Now, let's fit this into the greater context of Middle East policy. The White House has signaled it wants its allies like Israel and Saudi Arabia to have a role in negotiations on the Iran nuclear deal. And these countries ostensibly want to stem the tide of influence of Tehran in the region. What's interesting is in response to the release of the report, U.S. officials sanctioned dozens of Saudi officials and not one of them implicated in the report the crown prince. This points to the White House wanting to maintain relations with Saudi Arabia despite this report, and this is happening as the U.S. seeks to maintain a balance when it comes to Iran. Something to look out for on this developing story is if the U.S. can work with Iran while also cozying up to adversaries to Tehran and launching airstrikes against targets Washington says belongs to Iranian-backed militants. Okay, and before today's analysis, we have another sponsor to the show called Two-Face. Two-Face is a mask manufacturer aiming to provide others around you with a sense of ease. There have been a growing number of calls for people to wear two masks. Two-Face asks, why stop there? Two-Face makes masks that appear like they're double layers. They take it even further, though. You can order masks that look like they have up to 50 layers. That'll keep the door greeter at Target off your back. Two-Face's philosophy is, since the U.S. can't provide enough N95 masks to its population, why not bank on growing calls for people to double up? They say there's no point in looking back at how medical supply companies outsource their production to places like China to save a buck or two. Why not? That's in the past. The future is looking like you have 37 layers of bandanas on. But here's the real trick. 
You're only wearing one. Order now by punching yourself in the gut 14 times and trying to do a backflip on a highway during rush hour. Well, that was a great read. Thanks for keeping us safe to face. Now for our analysis. Last week, we talked about how the news tells us to view the world is through the lens of good versus evil. You can listen to the most recent episode if you missed out on that. But to sum up, there is an intrinsic value placed on news stories through the framing of developments that amount to a Christian understanding of the world. One side is with Jesus and the other with Satan. I brought up Myanmar as an example. But this week, I thought I'd broaden the scope a bit. You see, more often than not, those narratives are inescapable when covering the news. Just look back at this episode. We can go through each story one at a time and figure out which actors I framed as good or evil. It's what we do as journalists. We select facts. We choose which ones to highlight and which ones to ignore. Until some quantum technology comes out to provide extra dimensions of coverage, this will be the case. As for now, we're all left stranded in a sea of sometimes overlapping, sometimes competing narratives to explain events. Not only from news outlets, but from governments, NGOs, Facebook groups, and so on. There are many ways we can help break through this, but perhaps the best I can present to you is through assuming that any actor in a news story is a bad actor. That includes the storytelling, me included. What's important for any journalist is to read from a vast number of sources, including ones we may disagree with, to hear aspects of the story that may be left out in others. This is difficult for an average news consumer. Whereas this is part of the journalist's job, this is not a requirement for being a savvy news reader. What this means is a healthy dose of skepticism. Asking questions like, what's being left out of the story? What would be the motivation behind it? These are ways we can become more critical of the media we take in in general. Because it isn't just found in the news, this can be in works of fiction, movies, video games, and so on. The world is full of narratives that we need to be critical of. But of course, this is not without saying there are reputable sources, and there are actors that are trying to prevent factual accounts. It's just a matter of finding out patterns like when that's true and when it's important that they do so. And as a side note, I'm not saying that all actors in a news story are bad, and so therefore you can't believe the news. What I'm saying is, go ahead, listen to the news, take in the daily events, but at the end of the day or at the end of the broadcast, think to yourself, what questions remain? Who's asking the question? Whose voices were unheard? Were certain voices in the story elevated too high? Now there's a fine line between healthy skepticism and conspiracy theories. And that's a whole entire episode on its own. But as for now, that's all I have for this week. I hope you enjoy the new format. Become much more than an afternoon hobby. And I hope to expand this even more. Please tell your friends, let's have a party. This is Tim from The Global Good Fight reminding you, to stay global, to stay global, to stay global, to stay global, to stay global. To stay global. <laughs>